Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. There's, there's a theory out there that the industry moved away from plants and kind of plant-based therapies because it was a little more difficult to, to, to patent. You couldn't copy as much off of it. Yeah, so this, this pharmaceutical industry today that, that was pumping out you know, tons of local opioids is um, in many ways different from the one Appalachia is going to help build. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia meets world. It's Will. And Neil, what is happening, my man? Guess who's back? Back. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Getting into some Slim Shady there. You, you doing all right? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm good. How about you? Man, I'm good. I don't know about this uh, current situation in the world with the Final Four going on. I know our team is out. Kind of crazy happenings right now in the sports world, huh? Sports world, yes. I thought you were talking about the happenings in the world, the war. Yeah, well, you got that too. That's some unfortunate stuff going on, man. Yeah, it's awful. I feel bad for the refugees and, and hope that, you know, they can find solace or find comfort or find refuge somewhere. It's hard to imagine this day and time that that type of evil is out there, but it is, it's a real thing. And I feel for those people and hope and pray for their safety right now. Yep. In the sports world though, the blue bloods are still in existence, except for the blue blood, in my opinion, the blue blood. I can't believe North Carolina and Duke are playing in the final four. I know. It's like my worst nightmare. I know. Like, I, I don't even know if I can watch it. And you know it's all set up. I mean, you know Duke's going to win it all anyway. It, really? Because Kentucky lost, Duke will win it all. That, yep. That's the way it goes. We're their nemesis. We lost. We're out. Now it's it's over. So all those people that gamble out there, you heard it here first, Duke's going to win. You think it's rigged? You think Coach K like, somehow has rigged it? Or, I'm a conspiracy theorist, you know this, so of course I think it's it's rigged. <laughs> I think you might be right. Speaking speaking of gambling, since we're giving out gambling tips, what do you think about legalized gambling, Will? You know, I don't have a lot of problems with it if it's done in a regulated way. So what um, do you think about like for me, somebody that lives in Kentucky? What if I wanted to to place a, a bet on something or I wanted to go to the casino for the night? You know what happens if, you know, I get that inkling, which I don't much, but thousands of people do drive across the border and, and, and give give my money to other states. Right. I know you have one legislator that won't even allow it to come to vote. Yeah, I know. So that's really why I brought it up. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about that? Why, well, why in real, this world should one person have that type of power? Look, look, yeah, regardless of whether you are 
for it or against it. If you're a legislator, you legislate for your constituents. And that's not what he's doing. Exactly. It's called a democracy for a reason, not a dictatorship. Exactly. Bring it to vote. Yeah. I I mean, I don't even care what your stance is on it. I could care less. I I mean, I I can give you... 10 reasons right now why you should vote for it and 10 why you should vote against it. So I don't even care. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to go do it next weekend either way. Right. But But you should at least have the ability to vote is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand it. You know, I just thought I'd bring that up. Yeah. And that gets to, uh, you know, people losing trust in government, not having a lot of trust in authority. Totally turns me off. I know that. Yeah, and speaking of not having trust, it's something that has to do with this issue of old school singers. You know what a singer is, right? Oh, yeah, man. Is that the people in church that get up on Sunday morning and, and sing? <laughs> that just just the <laughs> singing. Is that, is that what it is? Is that what it is? Or is it swinging? <laughs> I think we're both confused. On we're going to change it to just a saying. Yeah, I like it. Uh, oh, so, yeah. yeah. So ginseng hunters, ginseng hunters. I don't know if you, you ever seen the show American Outlaws. Oh, yeah. It was on the History Channel. I think yeah. it's several years old, but it was all about Appalachian ginseng diggers and ginseng harvesters kind of glorifying the, the practice of ginseng hunting. So I know another big issue is, you know, the use of, of, of medical marijuana, but not to get going down that path of, of that. But when talking about medical medicinal usage of things like marijuana, for instance, before that ever happened, ginseng, as you like to say, was kind of like the original medicinal plant, right? medicinal product of the Appalachian region. Yeah, it dates back centuries. Like we invented it, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I did. It dates back centuries. The big thing is that the pharmaceutical industry, you know, was big in buying ginseng, especially from the Appalachian region. I found out that the climate and the temperate zones of Eastern Asia, which is where the ginseng goes, and Eastern North America, especially Appalachia, kind of have similar temperate zones and similar plants in regards to ginseng. Very similar. So can you imagine people in the mountains going out in their, in their, in their backyard and finding ginseng root and then, and then selling it to the, to the local pharmacy down the street? Like, can we go back to those days? That's exactly what it was. I I read that there was an estimated 21,000 metric tons of American ginseng that was exported overseas between 1821 and 1983. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people like in our family that, that could find a way to live, live off searching for this plant. I've said before, I used to hunt bloodroot and I would occasionally find ginseng along with it, just not enough to sell, but I could find tons of bloodroot. But that's what families did for generations in Appalachia. There's so much cultural heritage there in regards to ginseng hunting because it was a way to provide for your family. I know. Crazy, right? I mean, I I talk like I know all the history of it, but I'm sure there's, uh, well, actually, I know there's a lot more 
people out there that can give us the facts instead of me just uh, randomly talking about ginseng. And before, I feel like I should get an expert. Yeah, before we get into that expert, and I'll let you speak to him, I, I just wanted to say that ginseng has gotten to the point where it's becoming incredibly over-harvested in Appalachia. And so there's fear that, you know, people are trying to preserve the ginseng. And a couple of ways they're trying to preserve that is through forest farming. So there's this idea of cultivated ginseng is not as good as wild ginseng. Wild ginseng goes for like 25 times the amount of cultivated. But there is this other preservation method called forest farming, where it's not cultivated in plots, but it's planted in the forest and allowed to grow wildly. Also, researchers are trying to test ginseng is really valued for its roots, but some researchers are testing for the leaves to see if they contain as much ginsenoside, which is (laughs) it's the compound that that's not even a real word. (laughs) It is. It's a compound that has the medicinal value. So they're seeing if the leaves Some people suggest that the leaves contain as much as the roots, which is also a way to preserve and cultivate and forest farm this. So that's become a big thing in in research departments, especially universities across Appalachia, across the South, try to preserve ginseng. Hmm. Sounds interesting. But, you know, you mentioned earlier this this, distrust with government. That's been a lot of the problem with ginseng hunters because, like you said, it reaches back centuries and many families have prospered when they needed it from hunting ginseng but when authorities step in regulations step in and they take away they they put down public land they have taken away ginseng hunters rights to just go out and hunt yeah i don't want to get too technical and in the legalities of 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 things but i feel like government ruins a lot of things (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry just don't mess with the don't mess with the guy out there on his farm trying to live off the land. Provide for his family. Yeah, I'm all for it, man. Leave people alone. You know, there've been ginseng hunters in Appalachia for centuries. It's a heritage. You need to empower the hunters. And I mean, speaking of empowering people, Will, are you in the market to buy a new home or refinance your current home? Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, Dave Godsey at Fairway Independent Mortgage Corp, who's one of our sponsors, I might add may be able to help you. Dave offers a variety of different loan programs. Call him today at 606-344-8734 and find out what mortgage options may be available to you. I just had to say that while we were talking about people living off the land. There may be some people out there trying to find a way to to put more money into their land. So anyway. (laughs) As we've suggested, you know, Appalachians have always dug ginseng and, and kind of sold it to the middleman who eventually sells it to China, which is a very valued product in China. Uh, I did want to highlight uh, an, an app business this week. You got an app business of the week? Yeah, before we before we get into our uh, our episode here, I would like to mention, so not to spoiler alert, we're talking about ginseng on the episode. I just thought it would be fitting that if we highlighted a company in Appalachia that not necessarily just ginseng, but does a lot of things for, with plants and, and herbs, roots uh, to help people all over the world. But um, Appalachian Herbal Company, it's a supplier of raw botanical ingredients found in and throughout the Appalachian Mountains. We, as you know, we host one of the most 
spectacular ecosystems in North America, and there's vast amount of medicinal herbs, roots, leaves, barks, and flowers throughout Appalachia that this company has for a long time found a way to, you know, supply people all over the world with. Whether being conventionally wildcrafted or certified organic, they supply high-quality sustainable products in whole, cut, or powered form. They have over 200 years of accumulated experience in the botanical industry. The collection of historic families in this herbal industry make the Appalachian Herbal Company a trusted, sustainable, and reliable partner for botanical needs all over the world. So I just thought we would take a minute and, and point out this uh, this company, the Appalachian Herbal Company, which I believe will, if if I, I'm not mistaken, is located in Pikeville, Kentucky. Really? Yep. I did They're, not know uh, that. The Lockard, Mugenberg, and Wilcox families kind of form this Appalachian Herbal Company. You, you see their name kind of all over the place, but anytime I can highlight a, a company that has offices and is based in the 606, I want to take an opportunity, opportunity to do so. So check them out. You can check them out at AppalachianHerbalCompany.com. Nice. That's a perfect at biz this week for our guest. Yeah. Looking forward to this, this guest, Will. I spoke earlier about my lack of knowledge in this department. Um, I feel like I should just be able to reach down, pick up a book and read about the history of ginseng and, and, and uh, no better person to talk to than, than the guy we're about to have on. Yeah. He, he has a new book coming out, Ginseng Diggers. It's Luke Manjay. What a great name. Yeah. Dr. Manjay. Dr. Manjay. His does not book. sound like an Appalachian name, but I'm pretty confident he's as Appalachian as they come. It's very cool, uh, too. He, he not only talks about the history of ginseng, really the book highlights the connection between the pharmaceutical industry and ginseng in Appalachia. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk to somebody that knows the facts. Definitely an expert. All right, let's get him on here. He is a historian, an author, and assistant professor of history at Dalton State College. He got his PhD in 2017 in environmental history and Appalachian history, and has an upcoming book released on March 22nd called Ginseng Diggers, a history of root and herb gathering in Appalachia, which we'll talk about in more detail in a little bit. I also wanted to mention that him and his brother have a blog dedicated to the nature and history and culture of Southern Appalachia region called the Southern Highlander. So if you want to check that out, but Luke, we wanted to, can we call you Luke? Sure. You mind? Of course. We want to thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll, we'll dive into the first question. This is a question that we ask all our guests like most Appalachians, Neil and I, our family, we are big on tradition 
And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have a huge spread of appetizers, usually more appetizers than the actual meal. But we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, man. I, you know, I love, I love greens. I mean, you know, I mean, all kinds of greens, uh, turnip greens, mustard greens, collard greens. So that's, that's my, uh, my go-to. Go-to holiday dish. Yeah. Nice. Can't go wrong with some greens. Never never a bad time for that. (laughs) So do you have cornbread or biscuits with those greens? Uh, Cornbread. I, I I wanted to ask you, I looked at your background a little bit, but before we get into your work and especially your new book and, and kind of this, obviously this episode's on ginseng uh, or singing, as some people would say, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your time as a, as a small town journalist in Appalachia. You know, you I think you mentioned in your bio, you know, you learned a great deal as a journalist in, in small town Appalachia. What did you learn about Appalachia that you maybe didn't already know as a, as a journalist? Oh man, that's, that's a good Definitely. question. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a little weird. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an uh, an ex, an expat Appalachian in some ways. Um, I, I my my family, my mom's side's from Eastern Kentucky, and um, I, I kind of grew up in North Georgia, but just outside of the mountains. You know, kind of going into we we, we traveled and and fished and hiked and stuff all through the mountains growing up, but. Uh, you know, I went to college at, uh, at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, so I was living in Atlanta for, you know, four years, and I graduated and moved straight to Murphy, North Carolina, which, uh, uh, you know, population less than uh, uh, 2,000, you know, and wrote for the Cherokee Scout for uh, about, a, about a year, a little over a year, but I mean, it was a, it was an experience just being able to, to interview all kinds of different people traveling, you know, to their homes, to their businesses, interviewing everybody, you know, from farmers to, to county commissioners, to local attorneys, teachers. I mean, you name it, you know, it's like I wrote about it. In terms of what I learned that I, I, I maybe didn't know before, I felt like I was pretty familiar beforehand going into it. I don't think there was any surprises, but you know, just uh, the, the the people there, I mean, they were super sweet. People would, would go out of the way to just kind of help you out. I remember, you know, a coworker of mine, you know, she's from from Murphy going back a long time. And, you know, she would uh, she would just go to the, the funerals at the funeral home next door. You know, and she, and she didn't even know them, you know, but she would just kind of go see, go to these funerals. And I remember thinking like, wow, you know, this is really kind of close knit people, that, you know, that, that they, um, you know, care, care enough about each other to kind of do things like that. It was a little different being a, a journalist in this small town because uh, everybody was a little suspicious of what you're going to do, yeah, right, what you're right. going to write about, you know. But you know, most of them eventually kind of came around. And we had a good chat, but you know, you had to you had to break the ice just right. In this in this newspaper was so I mean it was so important to the local community. I mean because it didn't have there was no daily paper that kind of covered it. And, I won't get stuck on that topic too long. But how how yeah. did you get there? How did I get there? <laughs> That's a good I, I mean, I knew of the area. I'd been, you know, hiking and, and fishing and stuff all kind of around there. I, to be honest, I wanted to get so far away from Atlanta, just philosophically. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I, I just started applying for jobs up there and I had a history degree, you know, so I was just kind of looking for anything I could get a job at. Small it was the geography that kind of pulled you to that area? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was geography. I mean, my family wasn't too far away. You know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't moving too far away from them, but, but it was uh, just far enough. different, different from it. Yeah, far enough 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer. And, and I wanted to ask because, you know, Neil and I do this podcast and, and just through doing this, we've, we've learned quite a bit about the region that we might not have otherwise yeah. learned. Kind of a good uh, change of pace and, and very interesting. And, and I'm, I'm assuming uh, exactly the same as a journalist in a small town. Yeah. But yeah. now uh, I wanted to ask about ginseng. So we can dive heavy and deep into ginseng, which is kind of what this episode is about. Just for some of our listeners who may not even know what ginseng is or saying, or you can, are, are there other nicknames for ginseng? Can you just say technically what ginseng is, maybe what it looks like? Sure. Yeah. If you didn't know what it was and you just walk, you'd walk by it in the woods. I mean, to the untrained eye, just like any other kind of herb, but it's a deciduous perennial herb, you know, it dies back every year and it grows up and it, and it gets maybe about two feet tall at its height, um, at, the, at the tallest. Um, it grows for a long time, takes a little while to grow, but it, the leaves kind of come out from this radiated, this stalk in the middle. And um, it can be two prongs, three prongs, four prongs, maybe even five prongs. And each prong has five little leaflets on it. Um, and the older it gets every couple of years, it, it, it two to four years or so, it adds another, another prong. Yeah, it's uh, just a small little herb and the root is what's, um, what's valuable of it. Um, and you have to dig up, you know, dig up the root to kind of get at it. I, I grew up hunting bloodroot, digging up bloodroot, which is not as valuable as ginseng, obviously. Right. But in yeah, Eastern yeah. Kentucky, occasionally hunting bloodroot, I would find random ginseng sporadically throughout the mountains which is i think the case now it's not in abundance like it maybe once was back in the day i wanted to ask you you know there's this debate over cultivated ginseng versus wild ginseng and and from what i know wild ginseng is more valuable than cultivated Mm -hmm. just uh speak to the difference between the two um and and why wild ginseng may be a little more valuable yeah, wild ginseng has all, has always been kind of prized um, by uh, Chinese consumers. This is essentially who who you know who are trying to please here. Is, it, is, is most of this the vast majority of this of these roots are, are going to China, and for a long time they've maintained this kind of preference for 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 wild ginseng roots. And there are a couple different reasons I think. I, I mean, wild ginseng just looks different than. Um, and cultivated ginseng. Wild ginseng tends to be more gnarly. There's more of a likelihood that it might resemble uh, a person, a man, you know, which is uh, which is always the, kind of the highest valued route for the Chinese. And that seems to be more like an aesthetic thing. But uh, the, the cultivated ginseng is it's smoother. It doesn't have as many kind of shortened ring, growth rings on it. So because it doesn't have to kind of punch through this kind of hard packed dirt as much as wild ginseng does. Um, but, you know, there's there's some people that can grow this cultivated stuff that looks pretty close to the wild stuff. I mean, if, if, you, if you grow it out in the woods, then it, it can resemble wild ginseng. But it's, it's an interesting kind of consumer preference. Yeah, yeah I, I was curious about that. You know, like I said. I would see it sporadically throughout the mountains. And I always thought it was, it was, it was like gold finding, finding ginseng yeah. in the mountains. Oh, I know. It's, 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 it's worth a lot. For some reason, I like referring to it as saying. So I, so I may, yeah. I may just say saying. Uh, yeah, that's fine with me. Throughout this episode. So saying. Like the way it sounds. I, wa- I wanted to name my book Sang Diggers, but they, they kind of, yeah, they, they kind of didn't want me to. They, yeah. <laughs> use the full term i guess you definitely should have 
Speaking of your book, you know, saying it's really a storied plant in the Appalachian region, especially Southern Appalachia. But your new book, it really dives into how once, you know, the isolated region of Appalachia became connected to this global trade in medicinal plants. Can you uh, speak to that a little bit of how Southern Appalachia kind of got connected? I I know that's not a brief question, but maybe just, you you know, how it got connected to this global, global trade when most people think of Appalachia as this isolated area. Yeah, right. That's a good, I mean, that's a good point. It definitely punctures that myth of of Appalachian isolation. People, even in the deepest, densest woods, you know, people are gathering commodities for this, you know, global trade. But the story of how it started is actually really interesting. It involved Jesuit missionaries in the late uh, uh, or the early 18th century were kind of spread all over the world. Just so happened that one Jesuit missionary in China had been in, involved in mapping some some of the regions near near uh, Korea and sent a description of the plant back to um, you know back to Europe. He described you know this this plant and how how the how high the Chinese esteem it and this is what it looks like and there's hardly any more around here. And he just even like guessed, he basically said, if there's any other places in the world where this plant could grow, it might be, you know, Eastern North America, specifically New France at the time, Quebec area. And sure enough, another Jesuit was reading these, you know, those reports and and said, hmm, you know, I think that 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 probably does grow around here and actually got some of the local Iroquois to kind of try to find it for him. And, and, and they, they, knew, they knew the plant already. And so they, they eventually brought the plant in and um, you know, they made the connection that this is, they, they thought it was pretty much the same plant. Turns out it's a different subspecies, but it worked anyways in the, in the China trade. And from that point on, it stimulated a little bit of an obsession uh, across, across both sides of the Atlantic. People started looking for it left and right. It was found in Virginia in um, the, about the, around 1750, 51, or I think about. And then, yeah, from then it was just, it, there, there were several ginseng booms starting in Quebec and moving down to, to, to New York and then um, the Ohio Valley and the trade was established. So they kind of finally figured out that, that these two different subspecies of ginseng were, were both valuable in, in the Chinese market. A couple of those individuals, Calvin J. Cowles. Yeah. Cole. Was, was, was he, was he the Jesuit missionary or? No, no um, he comes, he came a little bit later. Jartu and Lafito were their two names. Both those, those two Jesuit guys. That, you know. Calvin Cowles kind of, uh, I won't say started, but he was significant in regards to kind of the modern pharmaceutical spread of botanicals or crude botanicals or the sales of that species, as well as the Wallace brothers. I think the Wallace brothers were the biggest, I guess you say, not cultivators, but sellers. Yeah, wholesale drug, botanical drug firms. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just for perspective. Uh, I did read that in 1920, 75% of the world supply of North American ginseng came from Southern Appalachia. Yeah. So, um, right. So 75% of, of kind of the, the, not just ginseng, but all the kind of medicinal roots and herbs that, that went into these global markets. And, and that, that is a, um, an estimate, I got to say, um, the, the numbers just don't really exist that I've seen to make, to, to, to prove that, but there were several people that estimated that. So that's, that's kind of general, the general number about two, about three quarters of the, of the North American plants that, 
made it into pharmaceutical markets. And I'm glad you made that point because a lot of your research I read came from ledgers from country stores throughout the region. Is that, is that correct? Because yeah. there was no other information or data from Sangers or, or, or mountain people that dug ginseng, right? Right. The problem with researching this topic is that it, 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 it's just, there's just not a lot of data on it. Um, there's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of sources. So, I mean, I had to get creative. And so, yeah, you, you have some big, you know, numbers like export, ginseng exports, but it, it's, it's very difficult to kind of get a sense of the size and scope of this trade. And so that's probably why, I mean, not a lot of folks had written on it. I mean, it's part of the reason at least. And, and so, yeah, I think the best way to, to, to figure out that is to go into the local areas, looking at these local, you know, store ledgers and business. Yeah, ledgers. I found that incredible, incredibly interesting. I know through some of your writings, you even kind of touched on the creation or the history of the general mast store, which yeah. I think obviously not a, a lot of people know about, but they don't know about that history, which I think was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to mention or ask about we, we have had on a previous episode an, an ecologist from UNC Asheville, UNC Asheville and he, ta- he, he was on the episode talking about salamanders and how mm-hmm. Appalachia was the salamander capital of the world. And, and basically because of how biodiverse the, the terrain is in Appalachia. And, and I think that's also the case for ginseng and botanical drugs because of the ecology of Southern Appalachia. But I think there's more to it than that. So why Southern Appalachia? Why was it so? Why is it so prevalent in Southern Appalachia? Why could you find it there other than the, the ecology? Right. Yeah. Like as you said, I mean, one of the most botanically diverse temperate forests in the world. So I mean, it, on the one hand, it was just easier for people to gather it, uh, you know, because they had just so many different types of plants within walking distance. You know, so you could gather two dozen you know or so different plants and and uh, just a kind of a short jaunt uh and i, and I think that's a that's a big reason why southern appalachia kind of becomes the the, the key supplier of, of medicinal plants but i think as I, the case i make in the book is that the other another reason why it, it does so is because of the persistence of the of the commons and um on those mountainsides so essentially these mountainsides you know were left forested they were owned by someone but who, whoever owned it typically allow people to go gather stuff on it, right? People could basically expect to have access to all these forests around their communities. And you had to kind of have that in order to be able to gather all these different types of plants. I mean, you know, most people, if you just owned a little, you know, 50 or 60 acres or whatever, I mean, you might be able to find a few here and there, but, you know, for the most part, people dug these plants from other people's property, you know, and so I, I think in in so it was the, pro- the property of the harvester rather than the property of the landowner. Right. Yeah. For a long time, there were these kind of plants. If they were growing wild, then they were fair game. I mean, that's the way people looked at it. If you labored and put these, you know, put plants in the ground and raised them yourself, then you know that was well regarded as private property. But if it was growing wild, like it was fair game. You know, so I think that in many ways made it possible or to at least help this trade reach the size that it did in the region. And other areas had had commons before. I mean, the South in general, you know, had these common rights in different parts of it, swamp, swampy areas, any kind of deep forest, you know. But I think in Appalachia that, that these sorts of commons areas lasted a lot longer than they did in the rest of the South. So I, I think you have 
the, the persistence of the commons, you have this biodiversity, and you also have these um, entrepreneurs that basically developed the business, set, set up the supply chains. You know, without them, they were kind of a key part of the story, speaking mainly about the, the pharmaceutical you know, industry and the botanical drug trade outside of ginseng. But yeah, th- those people in specifically Northwestern North Carolina, where it kind of started, or at least, you know, the, um, it reached new proportions there you had some key players that, play, that helped establish this trade. Yeah, I, I, I just found the idea behind the commons as interesting as anything else in your research and your writings. I just think it's a neat concept and maybe one that people hadn't really thought about or don't really think about. Yeah. And how the law has changed over time in regards to that is, is very interesting, or at least it was to me. <laughs> yeah, good. Me too. What, me too. What, what sparked your interest in ginseng? I you know, grew up hearing stories about it, you know, from my, from my grandmother. So I kind of knew what it was. Uh, I, I, I'd been in the woods my whole childhood, you know, and never really found it, never had people show it to me and I never really hunted for it, you know, but, but I heard that, you know, that my grandmother talked about it a lot and my great, great grandfather, apparently that's all he did, you know? And so I was always kind of interested in it, but um, I came to it from, uh, I mean, from the perspective of of a historian, like I, I was getting my, my master's in history. And I was interested in Appalachian history. So, you know, I actually started with this question of how did Appalachian communities kind of respond and recover from the Civil War? Like, what were the lingering impacts of the Civil War on the region? You know, because that was a really crucial kind of transitional time for in Appalachian history. And but I but I just kept seeing these references to, to ginseng and in other roots and herbs. And so, you know, ha- having known about it and kind of finding a lot of sources on it, I just I kind of kept finding more and more. And so I just kind of went went that direction, you know, just took a right turn and went to. Have you ever hunted for it? Uh, I have. Yeah, I have. It, it, it's not for um, not to sell it, though. I mean, I've never sold it. Um, so but when it. you when you said I think you said your great great grandfather that's all he did did you mean that he literally tried to live off ginseng yeah yeah he 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 uh, I mean he did some other things too but um, and he lived on my great grandfather's property you know so it was kind of like he was older and he had a house on, on up on the hill behind my great grandfather's house. And I'm not sure if that's all he did, but I know he did a lot of it. That's and, all you, you you have heard about. That's all I've heard about. Although I did find over. I did find records in the Pike County Courthouse that he was arrested for moonshining in the 1920s. So <laughs> I think he's also doing some of that. But he was just trying to go legal with the that's, ginseng. That's it's right. all legal now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned the boom cycles of ginseng, you know, through Canada, New York, down to Southern Appalachia. There was also this decline after much, maybe uh, after World War II. But in your writings, you know, you mentioned that root diggers were part of the most significant growth industry in modern America, which was the pharmaceutical or or what we know today as the modern pharmaceutical industry. You, You wrote it once provided a means for economic independence and stability for these root diggers. But now, kind of in the modern uh, society, it has also recently brought tragedy and uncertainty. And I think your point there was that the decline in botanical drugs, the, the, the decline in plant medicinal uh, drugs has kind of led to the synthetic pharmaceutical industry and the rise in the opioid industry. Can you connect the two or talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the pharmaceutical industry today is 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 different than it was in the in the late nineteenth century. I want to be careful here because I mean, it, it, back then they were still using kind of some some synthesized chemicals. They were still using kind of minerals. They were they weren't using all plants. I mean, plants were only a small part of the pharmaceutical industry. They but there was still a, a good chunk of it that that needed these raw plants, these actual physical plants, to be harvested from the ground, you know, and and made into into medicines. But you know, after World War II, it, the, the the industry just quickly kind of moved away from that. Um, medical botany was no longer a subject, you know, that people that, that, that physicians took, uh, that pharmacists took. And in many ways, just these synthetic drugs just took over the market, as well as other things like antibiotics and things like that. I mean, we're, 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 a lot of changes happen in, in to, to modern medicine, a lot of it good, you know, but it does, it does, it does change after the war. And it kind of paves the way for the development of these um, synthetic drugs that are incredibly profitable. You know, people can can find ways to synthesize these certain chemical compounds and get patents for them, you know, and so it, it's incredibly profitable. There's there's a theory out there that the industry moved away from plants and, and kind of plant-based therapies because it was a little more difficult to, to, to patent. You couldn't profit as much off of it. Yeah, so this this pharmaceutical industry today that that was pumping out you know, tons of opioids is um, in many ways different from the one Appalachians kind of helped build. Yeah, um, that's a very interest, interesting contrast. You know, it stabilized the farmers that, that maybe needed it at the time and has turned around and ravished an, an area in just a couple, you know, several decades. Uh, yeah, I know. And, and it's all about kind of the sourcing of these plants, right? They used to have a role in, in, in sourcing these drugs and and now they don't. I mean, other other industries like this natural supplement industry, um, you know, still still buy some, um, you know, blood root and, and things like that. But uh, it, it uh, never reached the same kind of size uh, or hasn't than it did, I think, in the late 19th century in terms of just the, its importance to this this industry. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the maybe the future. I know none of that is really in your book. I uh, haven't read your book yet, but I find it. For, for the readers out there, it's an incredibly interesting history of ginseng in the Appalachian region. It's an, a great read if you're interested in the history and, and the profitability of ginseng throughout decades and centuries, not only Appalachia, but all throughout. But I wanted to maybe ask you, I, I know in 1905, I did read that the, they introduced the Growers Association, the National Growers Association of Ginseng. And that still exists today, even though, it, like, like you've said, it may not be as in big of abundance as it used to be. But just because of that, what, what's the future of ginseng? I, I know it's being protected uh, through legislation uh, in certain areas. In most states, you have to have kind of an approved manage management plan just to grow it. But is there a future for ginseng? Obviously, it's still being sold, bought and sold. I hope so. I mean, I hope so. I think, you know, the the, the growers associations, I mean, that, there are increasing numbers of people growing it in, gar in private gardens, um, you know, which may be one direction of the future of ginseng. I know, I know a few people that have nice big patches and they make, you know, good money, you know, selling their ginseng. Wisconsin has emerged as really a hotbed of, of ginseng growing. 
But I mean, I guess the big question is, is there a future for the ginseng commons, you know, for wild ginseng, like the ability of people to go out and just find it growing in the, in the forest and make, make some money off of it. That's a hard one. We're going to have to turn some things around. The National Forest in North Carolina have had a moratorium on digging ginseng on, on, on national forests for at least a couple of years now. They basically stopped it all. Um, wow. Because it had gotten it, it had gotten so scarce. I mean, they had been doing a lottery, but then then they basically just stopped it. And now, their latest more, uh, forest management plan that came out this year actually has some plans in there for trying to repopulate ginseng and actually actively grow it on national forests, which I think is a great is a great development. I think you know we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do some things like that to kind of get these populations back up and spread maybe more education about stewardship, you know, and how to, how to not dig it all up and how to replant seeds. I mean, there's a lot of people that do that and know that, but it's, it's, it's hard, you know, poaching is such a problem because people are unstable, uh, at least economically. And they, they take, you know, whatever shortcuts they, they want to take. Some of that means going out and just digging it out of season or digging it when it's too young or, not replanting the seeds, you know, like some states require the seeds to be replanted, not leave the site. So they're just not following these 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 agreements on how to manage the commons, right? It's basically what these laws are. So we got to do do a little bit of that to turn the ship around. But I think um, I think I think there is I think there will be a future for. It. So just to touch on your book, how long did it take you to write your book? Oh man, t- about this is twelve years ago I started, uh, wow. two thousand ten. Uh, Labor of love. Time. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I didn't work 12 years straight on it, but you know, here right. we are. The life of a professor, huh? Yeah, it it requires you to obsess over one topic for a long time. <laughs> I, I know. Are you, out. You're going to the Appalachian Studies Conference? Yes. Uh, are you, are you yeah. a speaker there or just attending? Not this year, actually. Um, I'll be signing some books probably and and doing that sort of thing. I, I, I was I was last year at a panel, but last year was virtual. So this is the first time we've had it in person four years. So I'm excited to kind of see people again. I wanted to add, I wanted to get a quick fact check. I, I read that, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but Daniel Boone made much of his fortune from exploiting ginseng. That is, I will say, I will say mostly true. Uh, I don't know exactly like how much of his fortune he, he, he made on it, but you know, um, he was a big time dealer. Um, you know, he was a digger and a dealer. I mean, he, he dug ginseng and bought it from his neighbors and then assumed liability for the shipment up the Ohio river. So, I mean, we know he was pretty heavily involved like mouth of limestone Creek where he settled. Um, he had, he had like a warehouse. Um, so yeah, that is, that is true. Very cool. I, I wanted to get a quick trivia in. Okay. So for the listeners that don't know, Dr. Manjay actually is a ex-member. So he, so he played football at Georgia Tech University. Not only did he play football, but he's the he's third in all-time field goals made at Georgia Tech. Second in all-time. He's the second leading all-time store, uh, scorer in Georgia Tech history. And he was inducted into the uh, Georgia Tech Sports Hall of Fame in 2014. So I wanted to to say that, say congrats for that. That's pretty awesome. And Thanks. I think you're second behind Harrison Bucker. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. He, a lot of people that know that name. Yeah, I had, I had, I had, I had several of those records while I was there, but they've since been broken. Um, yeah, Harrison Bucker basically shattered all my, all my. Not records. by too much. I think he's only what 
you were at 332 he's at 337 so that's a few oh, okay that's, that's true a few extra that's not a shatter but no <laughs> no by any means but i wanted to ask you do you have a, a favorite football memory from georgia tech oh yeah you know hands down it was my um freshman year uh back in 1999 we were playing georgia university of georgia uh, big arch rivals and that was back when we you know we won quite a bit of those that's uh, back in the heyday you, yeah you were, you were there in the heyday of georgia yeah, yeah. it was really a rivalry yeah you would never break that record now they don't score, score enough touchdowns i know i know <laughs> they, they gotta they gotta turn it around but but yeah i got to so i got to kick the game-winning field goal against georgia in overtime in 99 so that was uh that was a wet-eared 18 year old <laughs> freshman you know that's very cool uh, it was uh, that was definitely the, the highlight there's a couple of questions we we also ask all our guests I, Neil, if you I, was get, I was getting ready to ask i was going to say one, one question that we always ask all of our guests just you know this is a, a podcast about great things going on in appalachia but when I say that you're kind of different, sometimes we have people outside of Appalachia and it's always interesting to hear their, their answer to this question. But when I say this word, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Appalachia? Oh man. Mountains. Okay. I was, I thought you were going to say ginseng. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> I, I, I like the mountain. I, I probably, that was probably too obvious. I don't know. <laughs> There, it's too much too many things actually came to mind uh, yeah right it's still a good answer a lot of people say mountains the other question that we always ask all our guests we kind of ground our podcast on kind of place and perspective which is an you know important part i think that appalachia region is a you know especially in books and novels is a, you know is a character unto itself place is very important in appalachia and so we wanted to ask you just where do you call home and what makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Yeah, I mean, it. That's, that's a good question. I've, I've always considered, um, I've always considered North Carolina mountains to be home. I mean, like I said, that was my happy place growing up. That's where I had family. I got family there now. I, I, I hope to get back there one day. You know, kind of thing. It's, uh, it's where I go when I have vacation time. <laughs> so, and you know, I, I love Murphy. We live, you know, we were there for 10 years or so. And, and that was a great area. Of course, I got family now up closer to Asheville um, that I would um, that I go see whenever I can. Yeah. I just wanted to mention your book again. Uh, if you want to add anything to your book, like I said, it came out March 22nd. If you want to speak to that, tell people where they can find it, uh, how they yeah, can get hands on it. Ginseng Diggers, A History of Root and Herb Gathering in Appalachia. It is uh, through University Press of Kentucky. You can get it for about $27.95 from wherever you want to get. You know, small bookstore. Small bookstore. Uh, hopefully that, hopefully it'll be there soon and, and you'll be able to find it. And ho- hopefully your local bookstore. I'd say it's a worthwhile read. Definitely. It's, it's an incredibly interesting history of, of uh, ginseng and, and, and the history and trade. In that regard, I found it just through your writings and your research that you can find on your your own website. Uh, if you want to mention your, your website to the listeners and they can check yeah. some other readings and writings out there. Yeah, thanks, Will. Appreciate the words. I mean, it's uh, yeah, the, the southernhighlander.org. Yeah, you'll find some good stuff on there. Um, I put a lot of my students work in my Appalachian history classes, um, some articles that I've written, just ideas that I've had. We started as a blog with my brother. Um, way back in 2014, I think. Dr. Manjay, we appreciate your time and, and thank you for being on the episode. I, I found this incredibly interesting and, and good luck with your book. 
and at the Appalachian Studies and with your future work. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Neil. Enjoy being on. Good, Good chat with you guys. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Great guest. Great timing for this guest with his book coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Luke is a uh, great guy, man. I enjoyed the conversation and appreciate his time so much. So interesting to hear about ginseng as one of the, you know, the first Appalachian herb that was traded on a global scale. As he mentioned, Appalachian always thought of as being isolated, but that, you know, as far from the case when you talk about trading on a global scale. I know, kind of crazy. I, I know we kind of joked about it earlier, but I really can imagine people related to us somewhere along the line trying to make a living off ginseng, man. We got some good mountain roots. I'm sure somebody in our family did. I'd love to have found a family tree over at mom and dad's and see if we can research back and see if Skeeter was the only one out there searching for stuff in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> Skeeter getting a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, I, I I can't wait to get a copy of Luke's book here pretty soon. And, you know, I'm glad he threw in the, the history lesson about his football career. Yeah, that's, that was just cool uh, add-on. I know. Who who knew? And the second leading scorer in Georgia Tech's history. I know. That's, that's pretty profound. That's pretty – I mean, whether you like Georgia Tech football or not, uh, you got to respect that. So, I mean, that's that's pretty big time. It's all humble about it, though. Luke, <laughs> Luke, Luke played it off. Yeah, you, I know. you know, I'd be wearing a, a chain around my neck showing <laughs> showing everybody. Yeah, no, you're leading scorer right here. <laughs> I, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of his book. I just found, I just found it interesting, you know, the history, not – not only the history of ginseng, but how he found out about it from the, the ledgers, stores, the local general stores, yeah, from, from the, the general stores, the ledgers from the general stores, how he researched those to find out who was selling ginseng. That's just a cool thought. And, and not only selling it, but selling it overseas throughout Appalachia. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing history there. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's 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 how things were done back then. So. Kudos to to Luke on his research, and I can't wait to get a copy of uh, of the book as well. Yeah, <laughs> Luke, don't forget us. Don't forget us, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, no to find out I about, a, the I need a signed copy. <laughs> to, fi- <laughs> to find out about the commons, I mean that that was a cool aspect. Uh, just that lo- general law that they had in regards to the commons, and uh, yeah, I know that we we spoke about it briefly, but Luke just got back from the Appalachian studies conference where he did sign books it's really cool conference of of all about Appalachia yeah I think we're going to try to make that one next year and uh I really do uh really am thankful that Luke took the time to come on and uh be one of our guests hope you listeners seek out his book to try to find it before we move any further Will I did want to ask man as we were going through this, did anything kind of pop in your head uh, for, for our of place segment? It's not going to be a long of place segment tonight. It, the, the one thing that always jumps into my head when I hear the word ginseng or sangin or sang hunters is growing up in the mountains, which is what you and I did. But like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, like I've mentioned all often, 
you know, I can go through the mountains and find blood root all over throughout where we grew up. There's also ginseng in there too. And I just wanted to, I, I don't know if we, if Luke mentioned it, but I just wanted to say for the listeners that don't know, ginseng, it's a crop that in late June, it starts to bloom with small little white flowers. Then in July, it flourishes with these red berries, which is, if you've seen photos, you've probably seen the red berries on this ginseng. And then finally in autumn, when the leaves turn a little bit yellow, that's when it, that's when it's harvested. You know, if you are hunting it, that's when you should dig it. That's when the ginseng root is the, you know, ready to be harvested. And I just remember growing up in the mountains and doing that and not having any idea what I was doing, just kind of randomly picking these plants. And so I just wanted to point out that there's a lot more to it than that. And there's a lot of people out there that want to educate ginseng hunters. You see it glorified, like I mentioned, in regards to American outlaws and things like that. And so when people see that on TV, they just want to go out and ravage the forest and pick everything from here to there, which is the wrong way to go about it. It's best if you can educate yourself on the plant, educate yourself on how to, to grow it, how to harvest it if you're going to do that, but also how to hunt it. I think preservation is key. It's very important to not only value our heritage in regards to ginseng, in regards to ginseng hunting, but also to preserve our land, preserve what we have for the next generation. Absolutely. I'm certain that not only now, but even back then, I could have never made it uh, living off uh, hunting <laughs> ginseng. But it is an awesome, awesome story of our heritage. And uh, again, I'm just so, so thankful to really learn more about it myself. So I hope our listeners found this interesting and intriguing. And I hope you guys will uh, reach out to us if you have any questions or anything like that. You can hit us up on any type of social media platform, as we mentioned before, or you can always email us at Appalachia Meets World at gmail.com. Yeah. Appalachia is not as small or isolated as people think. And this book really points that out. Taking our plants all over the world. All right. Now, I guess I can end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again I'm getting lighter, the air's getting thin Now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong I'm in the mountains again